Welcome to the Brown Podcast. This is going to be around episode 90-ish, and really we're starting a new project here in 2019 that is sort of derivative of the project we were doing in 2018. In 2018, we sort of introduced an idea of green, an uh, sorry, of anarchism uh, that was topical, that was that was sort of like contextual to the to its time, and in 2019, I think we're going to build on that. Uh, build on the lessons and talk specifically about green anarchism and what it is today and how it's changed and how it's evolved. And a great place to start that conversation is the book published in 2018, although I think mostly worked on in 2017, Corrosive Consciousness. And we're going to talk with Bellamy about corrosive consciousness and its impact and some of the problems with its impact. Hi, Bellamy. Hi, Aragorn. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So, I guess uh, for you, it's now been a year since you've really worked on it. Where are you at in terms of like what the successes and failures were for you as an author of Corrosive Consciousness? Yeah, yeah. It's funny. It's I guess it's about a year since um, it came out, I think. But uh, it's been longer since I wrote it, so... Um, in some ways, it's funny having people still writing me or visiting me and talking to me about it because I am, I guess, uh, still so full of youthful vigor that, you know, a year and a half seems like a long time to me or something like that. But um, I, I feel good about what I've written. I feel like it was a, as I accomplished, you know, for myself roughly what I set out to do, which was to put a kind of capstone on a particular period of my my thinking and my media when I was podcasting very regularly and I was having a lot of exchanges with um, the anarcho-primitivists. So in that sense, it feels like a nice concluding note. Um, and I've had various people contact me and and with with praise or with criticism both of which I've appreciated and um, you know most obviously one of the issues with its impact is that it was not received by the targets of the piece in the way I would have liked you know I, I would have liked um, to feel like that particular dialogue moved forward in some way or resolved itself in some way, and that has not happened. Um, and I, I, I have a number of things I can touch on with that, so I don't know if we, if we should just press on or if you have a particular way you want to go about the conversation. I don't have a big strategy, but I, I do want to talk, <clears throat> I guess, before you go there, in terms of like... Sure. What was the thesis of the book before we get in get into uh, the the gossip aspect of it? Oh, well, okay, I wouldn't call what we're about to go into the gossip aspect personally, but uh, well, I mean, I mean put to put it from... to put it a little differently, like the point of um, uh, like talking about a thing like a book, especially with the author, 
is that there's a lot of people who were locked out of corrosive consciousness because they were never going to read the book. Whereas, for instance, if this were an essay online or a PDF or something, there's a type of audience that that would have read it and and now will never read it. And so I really what I'm, I'm wanting to do is to sort of step by step talk about like, how would you speak about the book to that audience? And then uh, and then then we'll get into what John and Kevin think mm -hmm. of the book. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I have, obviously, I still do this podcast with you periodically, which is very nice, but I have made a decision to mostly do things offline because I think we, we as, as an anarchist subculture broadly will benefit ourselves by stopping this kind of learned helplessness or, or sort of mass mass delusion that we can only communicate through the internet and, and uh, to remember that 20 years ago this is not how things were um, and so that's why I appreciate also what you're doing with Black Seed for that reason but if I were to summarize the book it's a kind of long form critique of anarcho-primitivism from an anti-civilization perspective, but one that is not um, uh, one that is not emphatically primitivist itself. One that is is still luddite. One that is, um, you know, absolutely for a a wild, flourishing, verdant world, but does not see uh, does not take a sort of hard capital P primitivist position. And so I go through and talk about issues that I see with primitivism in terms of its metaphysical outlook, in terms of the praxis that it suggests or, or fails to sufficiently detail, um, problems with uh, dubious factual assertions and, and logical incoherence in the primitivist position, and also a, um, a sort of overall accusation that the anarcho-primitivism that is put out by John Zerzan and Kevin Tucker has become uh, very ideological and that they respond poorly to critiques and that they seem to have, uh, as, as many people have accused them of, really hardened into this very narrow position and uh, almost in a, a sort of purity spiraling way based on a very particular view of how most humans lived, according to them, for most of human history, and how we must necessarily live again. And I, without, um, I, I think it, at least without being completely dismissive of that sort of view, I seriously question it and... Um, and suggest that we sort of, I guess, need to open the doors a bit to a, a wider view and one that is not so um, narrowly prescriptive. So in talking about the term primitivism, you know, it's it's funny, of, of course, you know, you and I and, and maybe our closest listeners uh, are really familiar with this discourse, but... <clears throat> The thing that was strange to me in its evolution was the way in which John's description of anarcho-primitivism became 
sort of larger and, t and smaller at the same time. So he started to replace the term green anarchism, which to me feels like the largest uh, sort of description of, of, a, of a perspective, uh, shy of sure. just calling an anarchist. Uh, he started to sort of say that anarcho-primitivism and green anarchism were interchangeable uh, descriptors. And I'm wondering for you how you would distinguish between an anti-civilization perspective and a primitivist or an anarcho-primitivist perspective in terms of definitions. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say it's it's sort of like um, all squares are rectangles, but not our, all rectangles are squares. So I would say all anarcho-primitivism is green anarchism, but not all green anarchism is anarcho-primitivism. And I would say, to me, the minimum definition of anarchism would be, um, you know, so obviously it, it it's, to begin with, it's anarchist, so I would say it's, that means it's uh, against the, that, that living without a, without political states is both desirable and, or possible and desirable, that um, we need to find ways to relate to one another that are uh, not based on, on formal hierarchies and interrogate ourselves for the ways that we have developed internal repressions. We also need to interrogate our conceptual worldviews and look at the ways that uh, things like our, our cosmology, our, our sense of time and space and that sort of thing, how that has become infected with this kind of self-alienation and self-domination. So that's anarchism. Then when you add, uh, well, okay, and then there are the positive anarchist values of mutual aid, voluntary association, um, liberation of desire, uh, all these sorts of nice positive values about how we can relate to each other, mutuality. Um, to make it green, you throw in there the critique that industrialism was a mistake it absolutely made life worse for human beings and for the biosphere more broadly, that to have free human beings, we need to have a, a free and flourishing biosphere that furnishes the life ways of those human beings, that we need to extend our compassion, respect, and love to non-human organisms, um, that agriculture as we know it in the sense of the plow, the monocrop, the narrow range of foods, the destruction of the soil also needs to go and we need to look radically at how we get our food and how that could be done in a way that regenerates the land and, and in, invigorates the human being at the same time. And, uh, and then there's the in the, the technological question, which is to take a serious look at technology and the ways in which the social relations necessary to produce and maintain certain technologies are, are not desirable and are inimical to an anarchist lifeway, to look at the way that technology has uh, really, especially very recently, has really enslaved our attention, has um, has caused, a, I would say, a spiritual impoverishment. Um, 
and to really look at the extraction question, what's necessary to create these technologies in the first place, and can it be done uh, without, again, undermining the health of the biosphere? So all of that I would put under the heading of green anarchism. The primitivist addition, I would say, and I think they would agree with me, is looking at the lifeways of particular peoples, or you could say the perceived lifeways of particular peoples that lived, roughly speaking, a nomadic gatherer-hunter way of life, and valorizing that to the point of saying, this is the true anarchism, and I'd say it, it also comes uh, I, th I think they would agree with this as well. I don't think I'm being uncharitable. It comes from a sort of Marxist anthropology that has as its basic tool cultural materialism. And so that's the idea that, you know, this old Marxist idea that the material conditions are sort of the realist of the real, and everything flows from that. So um, what we might think of as the, the sphere of ideas, the the um, community psychology, the values, are ultimately based on the material lifeway, and that's why the gatherer-hunting lifeway is so important to AP, because they say everything, everything is downstream of that. And so if you want to have anarchism, you sort of start with the material conditions. Um, and that's something I really don't agree with, uh, that whole way of looking at things. But, um, but in the book, I also... Um, seriously question some of those claims. And, um, yeah, I think that, that probably about rounds it out. Yeah, that's a great definition. You, you did a very good job of uh, cold, cold responding to uh, some de big definitions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I well, think... I, I, had, uh, I had some caffeine for the first time in months, so it's like a kind of like low-dose cocaine for me, and... <laughs> <laughs> help me get things going <laughs> yeah, you're ready you're really ready <laughs> i'm so, ready <laughs> so obviously when the book came out you know i was really excited because of course i i wanted yeah. this argumentation to come out um but you basically did and and you know all of us were anxious to hear john on his radio show respond to this book because of course it was a critique that was you know 75% or maybe 25% or maybe 50% pointed at him and, and, and this philosophy that he's, you know, devoted his life to. <clears throat> but, but there was some sort of side channel conversation where you basically said to him, you know, John, this came out harsher than I intended. Uh, but here it is. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, there's a behind the scenes thing where, here where Aragorn called me and told me how disappointed he was in me and how I'd really fucked things up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd my, like my, in my pod, in my podcast persona, I'm just a, a, a generate uh, a generous uh, lover of ideas, and you're basically <laughs> letting people behind the curtains where perhaps I have a dog in some of these fights. And uh, I would like to reassure everybody that I don't have a dog in a fight. I'm just, I'm just a, a generator and a lover of ideas, and I want to appreciate them for for what they are. Yeah, yeah. My favorite part of uh, 
the exchange that we had was was where I said, "Ah, oh, well, you know, I I I feel like what I said is true, and um, you know, so so what if it's being misrepresented? Uh, you know, people who look into it honestly will see what the real story is." And Aragorn basically told me I'm living under a rock, and I. <laughs> no idea how how the post-truth era works and i sound very naive and foolish so. <laughs> it doesn't sound like me at all um but you know again i'm a third eye i'm hovering over the scenario and i'm just trying to understand sure. you're making me sound like i'm i'm actually involved in the situation i mean that was actually the the, sure. the funny thing about writing the review like i i knew that we had to write a review in in black sea because of course this is the discussion we're in and and i really wanted to like you know to to make it clear uh whatever my position and whatever. And so the, the review was actually a very much a breaking the fourth window sort of review where I, you know, where I admit to the fact that, that I am also involved in this conversation. Sure. Anyway. Sure. So, so, yeah. more, but, but let's, let's return to the John part of the story and, and the way in which basically sure. I feel like he's ended up framing the book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in your review, you made a prediction about how John would respond, and I, I think it was, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, um, you know, I, I hope he does more than just a five-minute fulmination about how the book is so postmodern and, and ridiculous on Anarchy Radio, and and it was actually, what happened was worse <laughs> than yeah, what you true. predicted. Um, so, yeah, to get into this, I, I'm hoping to Sect the record straight here in just five minutes or so. So, two caveats, I guess, to begin. The first caveat is that I obviously wrote Corrosive Consciousness in a very hostile, confrontational way. It came out of a particular period in my life where I was very frustrated with John in particular. And this was... Um, you know, during when when we did the first season of The Brilliant and I was on every episode, we had a lot of back and forths with John in which I felt over and over things that I was saying rather than being heard and dealt with honestly were being just sort of misrepresented and, and blown off. And eventually this led to, after we did the first brilliant episode about it. Well, really the only brilliant episode about Atasa one, John responded to it by darkly publicly suggesting that I might be some sort of crypto fascist because of my stance on the ITS issue. And he actually compared me to Heidegger, which I guess in some ways is wildly complimentary in, in some ways, but he meant it in the sense that I was someone who was airily pontificating about ideas while in, uh, at the same time sanctioning fascism. And for me, that was just a sort of ridiculous high point of the whole thing, where I just thought, this, this is this, the straw that's breaking my back. And I was just pissed off after that, especially because John knows very well that in the current anarchist subculture, denouncing someone as a fascist is 
a very charged thing to do, or, or even just implying that they're a fascist. Um, so I was hostile, I was pissed off, but what I, 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 I'm disappointed that I use that sort of tone, because what I really want to see among anarchists is, as much as possible, as much as humanly possible, principled, good-faith exchanges in which we don't demonize people just because they disagree with us a little bit. And we have to take, I think, a sober look and say, okay, we're anarchists who, as green anarchists, we're for radical decentralization, we're against any kind of mass society, industrialism, agriculture, all these things I just talked about, which puts us in the margin of the margin of the margin. And it's unfortunate to me that we're, and, and I, I've been guilty of this, that we're lobbing vitriol at each other and just splintering even further rather than having principled disagreements. And of course we have to have disagreements, we're going to have them, but it would be nice if we could sort of rise to a higher plane of discourse. And when I wrote Corrosive Consciousness, I lobbed this kind of high-level venom and vitriol, and as I said previously on the show, if I, if I were to write the book over again, I would expunge that sort of caustic tone because it ends up just making things about egos and and you know big personalities rather than ideas now having said that that is the only thing i regret about writing it and that's caveat one caveat two is that everything i'm saying on this podcast by the time it comes out i will have already said to john zerzen via email so there should not be any further claims from john that i'm engaging in double talk or being two-faced in some way or anything like that. So he is, has heard directly from me the things that I'm going to say in clearing this up. Okay. <laughs> now so, you're going to clear it up. Now I'm going to clear it up. So I do not now, nor have I ever, regret uh, having written or disavowed the contents of Corrosive Consciousness. The claim from John... On July 24th uh, uh, of this year, his episode of Anarchy Radio, right near the beginning, he quotes me, he misquotes me, as saying, oh, if, if I could do it all over again, I wouldn't even write the book. This quote is taken out of context in a very obvious way that totally distorts the meaning of what I actually said. And for those who want to hear it in its original context, it is in episode 72 of The Brilliant, about 42 minutes in, and it's very clear that what I say is what I just said above, what I just said above about the tone. And I think anyone who looks into it will see that it is so obvious that he's quoting me out of context that I will say it's difficult to believe it's not deliberately misleading on his part. I don't know what goes on in John's mind, and I don't claim to, and it could be that he um, heard what he wanted to hear, but I think anyone who listens to the context of what I said it will be quite clear that you know it's hard to misinterpret <laughs> from the context of our conversation. And I find this move on his part to be very disappointing in terms of disrespect for me, disrespect for the discussion of ideas, uh, 
and disrespect, I think, for his audience, because I think he knows full well a certain percentage of his audience is just going to take what he said at face value, and they're not going to, to listen to uh, episode 72 of what we did, where it's uh, very clear what was actually being said. So then John went further, and to support his uh, out-of-context quote-based argument, he vaguely referenced an email exchange in which I supposedly renounced the book and, and said, uh, you know, I wish I could take it back or something like that. So I found this to be frustrating as well because it's based on referencing an unfair, unverifiable source for everyone else. They, you know, it's just his word against mine. And uh, I had such a uh, frustrated, neurotic sort of reaction to him doing this that I actually um, uh, posted the email onto Anarchist News and said, look, this is what I said to him, and it's not what he's claiming it to be, which was certainly a silly sort of internet culture move on my part, but these are the neurotic lengths to which I'm driven because I don't like being mischaracterized. And the backstory to that whole email exchange is that one of the editors of Backwoods, the one who goes by the uh, pseudonym Suggy Whiskers PhD, in inspired title, uh, really wanted to bring John into issue three of Backwoods. We had a meeting, and we were talking about what we wanted to do the first few issues. And this individual wanted to bring John in because uh, he uh, was was felt like, you know how there was that um, new Unabomber television series? I think it came out yeah. last year. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so... Suggy Whiskers felt like this was an important cultural moment for green anarchism, that this that sort of Ted was being revisited and brought back into the popular culture in this way. Mm-hmm. And he wanted John to write a review of the series uh. because he felt like it was a, um, you know, kind of like a, a mass culture sort of disinfo move to, to bring Ted back into the culture. And he thought, oh, well, John you know, knew Ted and, and would be able to write a good review about in, in what way is this, is this accurate, in what way is it not, and everything. Um, and, and so Suggy Whiskers wanted to come. And so we, we talked about it, and at first I was kind of like, eh, I don't know. But eventually he convinced me that it was a good move for Backwoods, and and said he wanted to contact John. And I said, look, uh, it's going to seem weird if you contact John because John's going to know I'm part of this project and it's going to come across as kind of disingenuous and sneaky for you to contact him with him knowing that I just published this book criticizing him. It's, it's just going to come off bad faith. And so I have to contact John. And so I wrote John and said, I'm doing this journal and... Uh, backwards, here's what it's about, and uh, there was this idea that you could participate. Um, but also, you should know that this book is coming out, maybe you've already heard about it, called Corrosive Consciousness, and I criticize you very heavily, and it has everything, it, it has everything I have to say that's critical of you, and I wrote it as sort of my last word about the exchanges we've been having, and I realize it's kind of funny timing, given that you're maybe going to want to respond, but 
you know, to me, I sort of, I've said everything I want to say, and I'm ready to move forward. And if you would like to be part of this project, you can be. I understand if you don't want to be. And John was skeptical, um, understandably, <laughs> and said, uh, you know, what, what basis could there be for me working with you when I, you know, I heard that you just wrote this really harsh thing. And I was like, well, you know, I, it's sort of like I, I'm done. You know, I, I've said everything I want to say. I'm not going to keep trashing you publicly. And he said, well, uh, and he, here's the, the dicey part. He said, well, one of the obstacles for me is that you're, you're so into Sterner and egoism because I'm just totally opposed to that point of view and, you know, therefore I can't work with you, which to me, to begin with, that's kind of odd. It's like, you know, why do we have to agree about everything? But, um, but I said to him, uh, uh, you know, John, I, I actually, in the time since I've, since I wrote that, I have reconsidered uh, some of the my core sort of metaphysical beliefs, and I'm thinking about things in a way that's a bit different. And so this is a key distinction, so I want to take a minute to draw it clearly. Corrosive consciousness is written from a certain point of view. It is mostly, obviously, about critique, but it necessarily comes from a certain anarchist worldview, and that worldview is a kind of extreme, sterner, existentialist type of view. And what that implies, and as I really kind of hammer on at certain points in the book, is that I, at the time, I was saying, look, the world is objectively, it's meaningless, it's chaotic, uh, all values are, are just self-created, there's no... Uh, purpose or direction to the universe. There's no purpose or direction to nature, and so forth. So, the book is very opposed to what we might call spirituality, which has always been, a, a, well, maybe not always, but certainly has been a big thing in green anarchism. And at the time I was writing it, um, and up until that point, I was very, I was very kind of opposed to that stuff. It just seemed to me like a new kind of a new, um, like a, a new sort of like quasi-religion that I just didn't like it, and that comes across very strongly in the book. And I no longer hold these views. Actually, I um, I'm, I'm a, an egoist apostate now to some degree, and I I have a view now that might look like I've just sort of switched sides, but. Um, I, I don't think that's quite accurate, and we can get into that at some point later if you want, or or we could do it in a future discussion. Maybe it would be good to actually save it for the next episode that we do. Yeah. Uh, so I told John, I you know I actually I'm I'm not so hardcore on these views. I still think Stirner is a really important thinker, really important to the history of anarchism. But I'm I'm more open to the spiritual question than I used to be, and I even think there's a kind of intelligence to nature, an intelligence to the universe as a whole, and that our values can be based on that. Um, and so this is different from what I say at certain points in the book. But here's the key point. That change in my personal worldview in no way contradicts the bulk of the book and, and the bulk of the critique of AP, because what I talk about 
that I don't like about AP, that I'm still very critical of, is this dualistic view of the world, the, the logical fallacies that they make in some of their arguments that I go to great lengths to highlight, almost sort of neurotic lengths, the contradictions that they make in their own arguments across different pieces that they've written, uh, the factual errors or the, the sort of dubious factual assertions about animals, about, um, about hunter-gatherer societies, about uh, whether their anthropology is as up-to-date and as standard as what they say it is. I, I draw some doubt as to whether it's really still the dominant view. Uh, they're, they're, um, they're incoherent and uh, sometimes very nasty responses to their critics. They're, in my view, maybe the big, one of the biggest issues, the, the way that they have not sketched out a viable praxis so that people are, are left with this big AP critique, but how do you actually manifest that in your life? So I stand by all of this. I never in, at any point intimated to John that I did not stand by this. I emphasized that I did, and that my only change was on the spiritual question. And I, my frustration, to go back to your original question, is that my saying I regret the tone, my saying my personal metaphysical views have changed, does not mean in any way, shape, or form that I'm not standing by the critiques, and I never intimated that to him. Last point, I know I've been talking for a while, and, and I, I'm going to give you a chance to jump in here. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's, there's one capstone on this, and it's a deeper point, and it's that it's another logical fallacy from John. Let's say that someone we know wrote um, an amazing critique of Christianity, and we said, wow, this is the best critique of Christianity since Nietzsche. Okay. A year later, that person converts to Christianity. That might be funny. It, it might make us wonder about the psychology of the person and their motivations for writing it. But it in no way would mean that their critique of Christianity was no longer a great critique of Christianity. Sure. So even if John were totally right and that I completely had disavowed the book, which, again, is in no way, shape, or form correct, even if he were right, it still would not undermine the critique of the book. And so he's just engaging in this convoluted, strange, tukulque ad hominem, and it does not give him any leg to stand on. And this whole, oh, I'm just not going to read the book, well, that's just an evasion. And making up fake stories about me, even if they were true, would not give you a valid reason for not responding to the book. The, 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 the term that you come up with, or obviously it's been used before, but uh, I had not really seen it used in the way that you had, is uh, Martin Bailey. Which is a great uh, a great term that that I I hope to use myself in the future. Which basically the definition is that it's a combination of bait and switch and equivocation, in which someone switches between a mot, an easy to defend and often common sense argument, and a bailey, a hard to defend and more controversial statement, uh, such as cultural knowledge is just as valid as scientific knowledge, in order to defend a view, viewpoint. And sort of what you're describing here is you know yet again. 
using that sort of, uh, I, I guess, technique. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the whole thing's very frustrating. And again, you know, I, I, w I would like to, I just have to emphasize it again, like I, I'd like to get to a point where we can have real principled disagreements that are not, um, not full of this ex these sort of excuses, not full of this sort of uh, internet culture, like hot take kind of back and forth where, you know, it's, it's sort of about, about the drama and it's about the, the, the fuck you and all that kind of stuff. And, and, um, and, and while corrosive consciousness did contain a fuck you, it also was an attempt at a real uh, brass tacks kind of disagreement, and I, you know, I just think it's unfortunate that it wasn't taken up that way. Um, yeah. As it stands, you know, the best thing that's come out of it for me has just been uh, people, people um, writing me and and saying things they got out of it, or writing me and um, and making some good criticisms of of the book and you know that's all been nice and and you know i hope i hope uh, people continue to get things out of it but um i don't feel i i think the failure is that it hasn't moved the conversation forward yeah i mean this is this is a very hard provocation that you're that you're talking about and, and obviously it's one that i've been working on also but essentially is it's this idea of that there was a time in the past where we used to actually talk to each other. And that's a big open question. You know, that that there's a part of me that, that feels like, you know, the high point of anarchist discourse was it the pages of Anarchy magazine and the letter section in particular? Because this was people who actually disagreed with each other trying to flesh it out and, and you know, spending the pages mm -hmm. to do it. Um mm -hmm. I mean, you know, in in one sense, I look back at that era and I think that these perspectives seemed so unnuanced and so sort of like almost like robotic. And and today, for for lack of better language, the variety, the wild variety of insulated, not talking to other people perspectives that there are in the world seem like they're a lot more varied and a lot more whatever. There's a lot more hyphens today than there were then. Um and it's and you know even if I'm against hyphens, uh, I'm not. Yeah, I, I guess I'm just not sure. I, I of course really embrace like returning back to, um, you know, days of yore. But but there's a part of me that just feels like, first of all, it's not going to happen. And you know, basically, there isn't a web forum out there that that really embraces uh, what it is that we're talking about here. And, um, I mean, just to speak to a couple of different contexts, there's a web forum called antisiv.net, um, but, yeah. but that, that tries to sort of be this, but mostly what I've experienced is that, is that they've absolutely allowed the sort of ad hominem shit talking, um, whatever fucked up shit broad category to, to sort of reign as an example. Really? I, that's funny. I mean, I, I I don't visit the website that often, and I haven't in a while, but I had the sense that it was 
it was rising above that, and maybe I'm, I'm not seeing the same posts that you are, but I had considered that a sort of notch on the side that uh, if you don't allow anonymous commenting, you do get a higher level of discourse. Yeah. I I wish that were the case. I, I mean, again, m uh, when it first started, it seemed respectful and blah, blah, blah. But uh, more recently, you know, you, of course, have a very different kind of... Uh, uh, you represent a different kind of attack surface than I do. And recently there's a, a person who's been really dedicated to, to doxing me. And um, oh. and I don't want to honor them with even mentioning their name, but uh, but they have actually uh, been on the, on that board, saying my full legal name and basically begging for more information on how to get me. And they're not removing that. I mean, the first thing that they did, they did not remove, and I just saw that yesterday they, they did another thing. But but the point isn't just that. It's it's like how do you do this and. And the, like, in this case, the person who operates the board is, quote unquote, friends, whatever that means in the in the context of the internet, with the person that's hostile to me, and so they're giving them I, a lot. They're giving them a lot more leeway than than I think is appropriate, and you know that's just the sort of thing that happens when like, power and access to resources and and friendship all collide, and you know, and 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 I will also say that, that I have done the same thing myself, you know, myriads of times. So, um, anyways, the, the, the point is, is that like the nature of the internet is that it's has a wild west feel to it. And that is a different way of communicating. And it's the, and yeah, you know, well, I get, go ahead. Yeah. I, to, to go back to what you said, um, when you said it's, it's not going to return to that. I mean, I, I guess I would question that in the sense that, um, granted, we, I, I don't think we're going to see the decline of the Internet in a big sense without the, basically, the, the loss of the capacity to maintain it, which would be part of some broader cultural decline or even collapse. But we can push back, I think, with, print media that has letter sections, and I, I guess I'll take a moment to shamelessly plug my own project and say that Backwoods 2 is, um, it, it might be out by the time that this is broadcasting, um, or posted, or whatever the right term would be, is going to feature a very large letters section, and I want to continue to do that, and I do think the... Uh, I don't know if this is a, an iteration of the medium is the message, but the, the medium is part of the entire mental process. And I think if you create that sort of minimum effort required to write something thoughtful and then also you know, basically have the gatekeeping of, of the editor, you do get a, a higher level of conversation, and we got a number of very good letters uh, to Backwoods, um, both, um, both just, positive and uh, very good criticisms. Just to be catty, and I, just to be sure, catty, yeah. if you have 10 pages of letters, how many of them were sent over email? 
Um, that's a good question. I would say. It was probably about half. Yeah. Um, but I think even, you know, the, the lowest of the low is the, the comment thread, the anonymous comment thread. Yep. You know, email, we're sort of raising the bar, <laughs> and then physical letter is, <laughs> is higher. And then, you know, I, I think um, uh, we, we're certainly we're trying to push people more in the direction of actually writing letters. And, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take email. Email is, uh, is better. Um, and, and, uh, and I think this, the same thing could happen with Black Seed, as I, I think this is probably the tenth time I've said that to you. And I think that that's the direction we should be going, and I, I think it's part of this broader move out of the learned helplessness of, like, oh, my God, we can't promote our projects if we're not on the Internet, then no one is even going to know that it happened. Well, a step away from that is, is you know, occasionally announcing something on the Internet but having it in print, and, and then I think we could slowly move away from total dependence on the Internet and pretending that you know, anarchist media didn't exist 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm not um, uh, adverse to this conversation. I just, uh, I am, I guess my experimentation has netted different results. And partially that's because I haven't, uh, I, I'm not so singular in terms of my projects. So, so for instance, like... <laughs> like a subtle diss right there. <laughs> no, no, well, I mean, I mean... It's not a subtle diss. It's because because okay. there's because there's lots of downsides to it. Like, like I th I feel like to the extent to which you represent something, people want to be in dialogue with it, and have been and 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 you know via backwoods. Whereas I don't think that someone feels like they can access me more through Blackseed than they can through other projects. But you and I know that I'm pretty uh, central to to Blackseed happening. <laughs> But sure. but I'm not but I'm not looking at Black Seed as being like I've done a very good job of being sort of making the arguments that are made in Black in Black Seed, but not being not for there not to really be a feel that Black Seed is my mouthpiece. Mm -hmm. sure. But but again, like this is a very hard topic because we are talking about like like I agree with you the the letter writing mechanism whether it's email or not like. Like that is a a nicer way to to do things, but you know if Black Seed is only going or sorry if Backwoods is only going to happen once a year, like that was actually also a problem with the Jota. Like when a Jota was was more frequent than twice a year was when the letter section was the best. So there so there clearly is a balance of how do you maintain high quality running conversations with timeliness. Sure, I mean Backwoods will be twice a year. We had a delay, but. Um... The, we're aiming to have you know this one out this month, um, the next one out in the spring. I agree that twice a year even is kind of low if yeah. you want to have a, a letters thing, and it would be better to do it more often. But that's just it's just not realistic for me at this time, or for uh, the other editors. 
Well, well, so, let, yeah. but, but let, let's bring this back to the conversation about AP and where you'd like to see that conversation go, because I think that that's more relevant to this conversation than than email versus common threads versus the rest. So, <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so, so where would you like to see uh, critiques or commentary or engagement with AP move on? And have you even read the last two or three issues of Black and Green Review? Wait, I'm, I'm, I missed the last part. The second, Wait, I'm not sure the second part of the question is, have you even seen the last two or three issues of Black and Grin Review, which you know we could basically call the mouthpiece of anarcho-primitivism in North America? No, I, I haven't. And I don't mean this as some kind of diss or to suggest it's beneath me or something like that, because that's not the case. I have not read Black and Green Reviews since I read the first two. Yeah. Um, and then I kind of, uh, I stopped um, only because, you know, there are so many things that one can read and one only has so much time. And I sort of, uh, you know, as I said in the book, I sort of, it's like, okay, this, this is my period. And uh, that was, I, I think maybe number three had been out at the time. I'm not sure, but I didn't read it. Um, and where would I like to see the conversation go? I guess, I, I guess the, probably the biggest thing, as I mentioned before, is praxis, um, because it's all fine and well to uh, purity spiral, as I said, but uh, what I'm interested in trying to talk about in backwards is like, okay, what, what, what can we really do? What can we do to extricate ourselves from dependence on civilization? What would that look like? And I think it comes down to, as I emphasized, uh, radical decentralization and, and trying to develop uh, real networks that have material autarky and that can um, cultivate something that is at least taking some steps away from the situation that we're in, because as it stands, I mean, anarchism is a brave and beautiful assertion, but as long as you are dependent on mass infrastructure for your very survival, then all of the... Um, all of the investigation into hunter-gatherer lifeways, all of the riots and protests, um, and you know, even all of the, the sabotage that even gets outside of that sort of uh, walking in circles paradigm, it, it's only it's only a sort of bluff until you can live outside of this leviathanic monster. So. That's what I'm interested in right now, and that's not to um, make the sort of claim that everyone sh should be doing what I'm doing or something like that, but that's where I'm trying to push the conversation, and that's how, what I want to inspire people to do. Um, and I, and I, want, <laughs> I want other people to do it with me and, and for us to really have networks. I mean, I think that would be awesome. It would put us in a very different position than we are now if there were 
if, if we could point to a viable way of extricating ourselves from civilization and say, look, there are all these people doing this. It is possible and it's desirable. And what, what I think is, is not possible is to uh, leap back into a, a hunter-gatherer life way. And I haven't seen... Um, I don't. I, I should put a, uh, a parenthesis on that and say I don't know what they've been talking about in Black Mirror Interview the past three issues, so maybe there's something more there. I hope there is. Um, but, you know, the, the idea that... Uh, when I wrote the book, there was still this claim coming from them that you shouldn't even be doing horticulture because uh, that's just for, you know, posers or something like that. And I think that's kind of a non-starter um, as far as praxis. Yeah, I mean, my, my sense is that it's still a fanboy journal for DIY anthropologists and to the extent to which it's arguing for any lifestyle changes at all or choices at all. It's arguing for do what Kevin Tucker uh, thinks is good to do in whatever year the issue is. Uh, uh, but I say that with all due respect. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to keep it uh, <laughs> less caustic. So, um, <laughs> that, that's right. I guess your words, not mine. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, and I, again, I, I just don't see... You know, the biosphere is, is devastated. Um, you know, where I live, uh, the American chestnut used to be one of the major human foods, and the American chestnut has been decimated and is still dying off. And, you know, the idea that, uh, that I, I could live a nomadic hunter-gatherer life where I am, which is a, you know, relatively speaking healthy area of the United States, it's just not even possible. And I think that that kind of hard line is not something we should be taking right now. I mean, it, it, maybe if, if the world were to regenerate magnificently over the course of the next few centuries, something like that would be possible, but uh, I don't think it is. And, and to rehash something that I pointed out in the book, the the cultures that the APs most valorize, like the Mbuti and the Kung, lived in equatorial areas where there was not a long, cold, dark winter, and uh, and you, it was possible to forage all year round. And that is not the case in a lot of the world. And so to think that we can generalize from people who lived a in a very particular bioregion to how we should all be living all around the world. Uh, you know, I, I've um, at times joked that uh, maybe the problem with AP is that it doesn't go far enough. So it's, it shouldn't just be go back to foraging. It should be go back to Africa <laughs> or, or go back to the trees when these things were possible and they're, they're not possible in, in uh, much of the world, I, is my strong suspicion. Yeah. I mean, the thing I've always said about not just John's perspective, but or AP, but, but really even anarchism, is that imagination is wonderful. Thinking and contemplating mm -hmm. new worlds is, is absolutely what we should be doing with our time. 
but we shouldn't confuse Definitely. ourselves. Like the work yeah. of imagination is different than the work of like, how do I survive in this world? Yeah, sure. sure. I, I do want to rehearse. Yeah, I mean, this, it, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was going to make a dumb joke. Just go ahead. Okay. So, so, uh, we've actually almost gone an hour, surprisingly. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, I do want to sort of say as one last thing, and this really, for me, why I want to do this is because I feel like this was a very different kind of critique of AP that you were making. And, and I just want to make sure that you get to actually fully throat it, which is that where you began, where you where you started to fall out with the, with the AP people was uh, because of your, for lack of a better language, obsession with leafcutter ants. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> so talk to me about how that works or doesn't work in your mind uh, or or how that began to creep into your critique of, of AP. Um, yeah, I, I, I almost, uh, I almost hate to go into it because I feel like it's kind of beating a dead horse and I've sort of, like, become, like, weirdly associated with this particular argument, so I'll, I'll, <laughs> okay. maybe I'll, I'll try to, I'll, I'll try to come at it, uh, both briefly and from a slightly different angle. Um, one, one of the things I'm interested in is trying to figure out, uh, where where the line starts with domestication and arriving at a more specific and practical view of uh, what what domestication is and especially in this world that we live in now that as I said is devastated uh, ecologically I don't see how you can extricate yourself from food dependence on civilization without doing some level of plant cultivation. And so there's a kind of question of how can that be done in the way that will liberate us. And I think that has to look like uh, doing, doing it less intensively, having less of a managerial role over other creatures, allowing as much as possible the, the plants that we have relationships with to to be as autonomous as they can be. And so when I was a, uh, shall we say, younger, more vulnerable, and more naive human, I started to wonder, and, and because I'm uh, a, a sort of detail-oriented nerd, I was trying to arrive at a... Um, specific definition of domestication because it was this central concept to these people that I, I was reading and I felt like they didn't quite rise to the occasion of giving a good definition and that's something that is that I go over exhaustively in the book and one of the things I did was find examples of creatures that had this kind of high codependence with other beings and even had a kind of mastery over them, um, arguably. And so one example I gave was a, a type of ant that uh, they cultivate a fungus and they um, 
chop up and, and mash up leaves, and they grow this fungus on this um, processed leaf matter underground, and this fungus lives nowhere except in the colonies of these ants. It's totally co-evolved with them, and the ants even do pest control and uh, maintain their fungal gardens, and then they feed on this fungus. And arguably, they're doing something that could fit the AP definition of domestication, so it was just sort of a counterexample to say, well, I think there's something wrong with, with the definition here, and we need to get more fine-grained in it. And that's not just for the sake of being a nerd and trying to have the best philosophical concept. To me, it was also about looking at, you know, we need to find, you know, what traits X, Y, and Z are bad for our relationships with other organisms and which ones are okay and which ones are the best and try to move from bad to okay to the best incrementally and you know it's it's i think um i think it it's a real practical question that needs to be answered or it's first a conceptual one and then a practical one and it's something that i'm trying to put into practice in my own life and it's something that i want to explore in backwoods and and we we did in this issue have a conversation with leila abdel rahim and touched on some of the same territory, and um, and I, I found with her, as with the APs, there were points of agreement, and there were points of disagreement, and um, and there were, there are hopefully questions and further discussion to be had. Thank you very much. I uh, thank you for having me. It was as as I said at the beginning, a pleasure to speak with you, and um, I look forward to doing it again soon. Excellent.